For a number of years, my uh, family and I have worshipped at First Alliance Church in Lexington, and the Alliance Church was founded by A.B. Simpson. And so I was intrigued when I found in our library a series of sermons by A.B. Simpson by the title, But God. It's the foundation of uh, what I want to talk about today. So the text for my homily this morning is two words. I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon preached on two words before, but perhaps in some ways that calls attention to the profundity of the inspiration of the Word of God. It's been declared that the whole gospel can be declared in these two words, but God. By some accounting, these words can be found together 43 times throughout the pages of scriptures. Others suggest that some derivation of these two words occur well over a hundred times in the pages of the story of God. So let me exegete these words, break them down for you to their simplest meaning, and you quickly begin to see, understand their importance. First, the word but. I learned in sixth grade grammar class that but is a conjunction. And if you're from my generation, you had the advantage of schoolhouse rock to help you. Conjunction, junction, what's your function, right? <laughs> and what was imaged were real ra- railroad cars that were linked together. A conjunction hooks together two different words, clauses, or phrases. We were taught that you use the conjunction and when you wanted to extend the idea that, you had al- that was already being presented. The same direction, the conjunction and was additive. The conjunction or linked to real raid cars, meaning that you had a choice between this or that. When you use the conjunction but, you wanted to indicate a change of direction, something opposite. When you wanted to indicate that it's not this, but it's that. You have heard that it was said, do not murder, for anyone who murders will be subject to your judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. It's not this, but it's that. You used but when you wanted to introduce something contrasting, a confrontation with what had already been mentioned, a protest against what has been. Synonyms of the word but carry the same connotation. Yet, nevertheless, nonetheless, however, still, notwithstanding or despite that. So the but conjunction is important for people like me who have aspects of their life in which they want to see some change. Situations over over which they feel little control. Relationships that are not all that they wish them to be. Besetting infirmities that keep tripping them up. Circumstances that keep rubbing them the wrong way performances where they can't seem to be all that they were meant to be. Maybe you too could use a little contrasting conjunction in your life. In spite of all, nevertheless, notwithstanding. So that's the first word, but. The second word is God. Now he's important for obvious reasons, right? He's the great change maker. The creator of the cosmos, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end of all things, the redeemer who makes all things new. 
the God who sees, the God who heals, the God who delivers, the God who sanctifies. He is the everlasting one, the Lord of hosts, the most high God, the Father Almighty. So you put those two words together, but and God, and you've got a boatload of good news. The gospel in two words. Grammatically, what it means is that everything to the left of the conjunction indicates life going in one direction. Then pow, contrasting conjunction, and everything to the right of the conjunction moves in a different direction. The significance is found in the simple adage, never put a comma, a period where God puts a comma, especially when the comma is followed by the two words, but God. So when you find those two words in a sentence or a narrative, you also know to start looking for what they call in inductive Bible study, cruciality or contrast, because there are often clues that the narrative is changing, that it's taking a sudden turn. So in the Genesis text that Tyler read, God is grieved over humanity. What sounds like a contemporary commentary on society, we're told that the imaginations of people's hearts are continually set on evil. Violence is increasing in the land. Marriage is being abused. Water prevails on the earth 150 days. All of God's salubrious creation is degenerating into its pre-creation primordial chaos. But God remembered Noah, a righteous and blameless man who walked with God, and God causes a wind to begin to blow. When you become sensitive to those two words, but God, you begin to see their recurrence throughout the biblical narrative. And you grow an appreciation for the operative action of the divine that they represent. They present themselves like marching bands punctuated through a parade, proclaiming over and over again in staccato fashion the wonders and the works of God. You see it in the life of the patriarchs. Joseph, sold to the Ishmaelites by his brothers and betrayed to their father as one eaten by wild beasts, but in the end he declares, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good, for the saving of many lives. You find it in the story of the nation of Israel, passing toward the, passing toward the promised land until the Ammonites and the Moabites refuse them passage. Fearful of their numbers, Balak bribes Balaam to pronounce a curse on Israel, but God would not listen to Balaam and turn the blessing into the curse into a blessing. You find it in the book of Judges when Samson, after killing a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass, despairs, wondering why after such a great deliverance the Lord would now let him die of thirst and be surrendered helpless into the hand of his enemies. And the text says, But God opened up a hollow place so there came water and revived his spirit. It's there in the period of the kings, when fear is struck in the heart of all the people of Judah, for a message is sent to King Jehoshaphat that proclaims, A vast army comes against you. And the Spirit of God falls on Jehaziel, the Levite, and he declares, Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is yours, is not yours, but God's. Day after day in the hills of the desert of Ziph, King Saul stalks David, seeking to take his life. But God delivered him not into his hand. And what does David proclaim in the Psalms? They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood. But God is the rock of my refuge and the Lord is my strength. You find it in the prophets as Daniel under a death sentence pronounced by a king whose wise men and soothsayers cannot tell the king what he had dreamed. And Daniel declares, but there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets. 
Go to the New Testament and you see the parade continuing. As many as received Him, to them He gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You find it in the transformation of Peter when he says to them, it's against our law for a Jew to, it's against our law for a Jew to associate or visit with the Gentile. But God has shown it to me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. You hear it in the preaching of Paul and in our vocational summons. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So, is it just editorial circumstance that there are so many recurrences of but God in the scriptures? Or is there something formational that the Holy Spirit, through the biblical narrative, was hoping that might give grounding to our hope, that might foundationalize a posture of trust and steadfastness if we were to have it take root in us? Might it be that the multiple places that but God is used in the scripture builds a sort of trellis on which our souls can grow like vines as they produce fruit. Psychologists tell us today about narrative therapy, that if you want to change who you are, change the story that you're telling yourself. Couldn't we argue that the sacraments that we uphold and celebrate are remembrances and means whereby we tell ourselves the story of the God who was and is and is to come and has acted in human history in a fashion that's characterized by but God moments. In the opening paragraph of A.B. Simpson's sermons, he writes that the greatest need of our age and of every age, the greatest need of every human heart is to know the resources and the sufficiency of God. To know the resources and the sufficiency of God. And for Simpson, the sufficiency of God could be conveyed in those two words, but God. Anyone here in need of a recurrence of a divine conjunction to become their identity makeover? So if I was to substantiate this claim that the gospel could be told in two words, but God, that it weaves its way throughout the stories of Scripture, wouldn't we expect to find it somewhere also prominent in the life of Jesus? And here for me was a great reveal. A discovery that still has me pondering several months after I laid hold of it. Inductive Bible study had formed me to kind of look for grammatical patterns as I read through a text, to look for the writer's intent. And so I started listing whenever I came across this phrase in the Scriptures, but God, and I would write it in the back leaf of my Bible. So I'm reading along in my daily devotion one day, and uh, not particularly engaged, but focused enough that it caught me, but God, there it was in the other uh, text. And I read a little further and a few verses later, but God, there it was again. And I read a third time, and but God, there it was again. And I knew enough about the scriptures, right, that when the scripture repeats things three times like holy, 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 it's probably worth paying attention to why it's there. So I paused to ponder, what book am I in and in what chapter? <laughs> and I'm in Psalm 22. The psalm that's on Jesus' lips when he hangs from Goggles' tree and speaks the words, 
my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Now, it's evident that Jesus knew the book of Psalms, likely his daily prayer book, and in the oral tradition that formed him, he knew the Psalms well enough to quote them in his final breath. Most of us, when death comes knocking on our door, we turn to Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It would certainly seem consoling if Jesus had cited from the cross, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, yet thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. But instead, he cites from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Theologians commonly interpret the moment in Jesus' life as the moment in which he's so identified with our sin, sin which separates us from God, that in that full identification, the only fitting words were, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We captured it in the hymn. The Father turned his face away. You can feel the distance somewhat in Jesus' words even more when we recognize that every other time in Scripture where he addresses Jesus, when he addresses God, he does so as Father. But here alone he says, my God, my God. Abraham was commended for his faith because when he took the wood off of his son's back and put it, built an offer on which his son was placed as an offering, the book of Hebrews said that he considered that God was able to raise men even from the dead. Now what Abraham did as a prototype and figuratively, God did in actuality. And so this psalm now causes me to consider when God took the wood from Jesus' back and built an altar on which he laid the sacrifice of his son, and when his son spoke the words from the cross, why God have you forsaken me? I wonder if he too laid hold of the rest of the psalm and the realization that in the midst of his despair, the psalmist would consider his deplorable condition with the reminder, but God, but God, but God. You know, what's also intriguing is that Psalm 22 ends in a rather glorious fashion. It declares in verse 28 that the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nation. And then in poetic fashion, it declares that those who have gone to the dust, those who are already dead, will bow before him. And then it says that posterity, those who have not been born, will serve him. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before God. They will come and declare his righteousness. So scholars who look at the literary structure of this psalm are often baffled by its seeming discontinuity. How is it that you can start with 21 verses about being forsaken by God and then you can suddenly pivot and end with the whole earth and even generations yet to be born joining in worship? So they reason that this must be a mashup, a revision, not originally spoken together and perhaps not really even fitting very well together, oh well. I kind of like to think that the psalm fits together because the, between those two realities of God-forsaken suffering, taking on our shame, and the worship of all nations is the recurrence of divine conjunction. But God. I like to think that with prophetic insight and foreshadowing, David was taking the experience of his own life, and through them God was revealing what David could never see. Some scholars suggest that the cry of dereliction marked on the one hand the utter abandonment of the son by the father, but when he took on sin for our sakes, 
But others suggest that it was then that Jesus descended into hell and led forth in his train those who had gone asleep before us. Could it be that somehow this psalm and the recurring assurance of but God kept before Jesus the joy set before him that was to be shared with us by which he endured the sufferings of Golgotha? J.R.R. Tolkien may arguably be the most influential storyteller of our generation. Tolkien inherited a tradition of literature from the Greeks that largely asserted that tragedy was the true form of drama because it conveyed the true nature of things. That tragedy was a true form of drama because it conveyed the true nature of things. It captured something of cause and effect. It spoke of fate, the chain of death to which we were all subject. Tolkien, however, was convinced that there was a deeper reality still for which our very nature was made. And so he wrote his stories certain that, the con- certain that the consolation of happy endings was the true form of drama and that it yielded something in the heart of its hearers that was very much the virtue of Christian joy. Part of the reason we love the Lord of the Rings is because of the form of the story. You know, in school meetings and city councils across America, our nation is convulsing contending over who gets to control what story we tell ourselves as a nation. Os Guinness, in his important book for our time, titled The Magna Carta of Humanity, writes that undergirding many of those frenzied conversations is the important question of what is freedom and how should it be ordered and how is it to be sustained. I'd like to offer that the story that we tell ourselves as Christians finds its origin and its essence in a divine conjunction. Israel was oppressed for 400 years, but God saw the affliction of his people. This Jesus you put to death, but God raised him from the dead. The story of our freedom begins with the same version of the two essential words, but God, but God, but God. So I'm hopeful that in preaching this sermon that when you and I are called upon to bear our lesser calvaries, that our faith could find its grounding by remembering the recurrence of but God moments in our life. The divine conjunction that is corrective to the small yet treasonous deception that is by our might and by our power that we affect the change that we want to see in the world. But God, but God, but God. This is our testimony. This is our hope. This is our destiny. Amen.